In its title, we're told that Psalm 60 is given to us for instruction. That's what David says. It's for, uh, given to us for instruction, or as some versions translate it, for teaching. This title is unique in the Psalter, and it tells us that this is a psalm written by David specifically, that the people might read it and pray it and study it and sing it and take it on their lips. And by doing so, by reflecting on this text in a number of different ways, they might be instructed. They might learn and grow in wisdom. They might become wise. And indeed, as we might expect um, for wisdom literature, this is a somewhat complicated psalm. It, it twists and turns more than most psalms do. It requires a close and careful reading and an understanding of its historical context. You see, Psalm 60 is like a riddle, like so much of the wisdom literature is in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. This psalm requires that we pull apart its threads to uncover the wisdom that it both conceals and, with the help of the Spirit, reveals to us. But although the path through this psalm may be a bit complicated and naughty, the wisdom that it reveals is not complicated. It's simple. It's straightforward. Or at least it appears simple and straightforward. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's how Solomon defines wisdom at the beginning of his Proverbs. And he expands on that thought a few verses later. He writes, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see, friends, this is at the heart of biblical wisdom. Fear of the Lord demonstrated by submission to his will and obedience to his commands then coupled with a distrust of our own capacities, our own strength, our own wisdom. It's so simple and straightforward, and yet so hard to hold on to in the complexities and challenges and temptations of our lives. There are so many difficult things that we want to accomplish, so many things that require wisdom, right? We want to fix things. We want to fix ourselves, right? Mend our hearts, make our lives go the way that we hope, do the things that we want to do or think we want to anyway. Even more challenging, we want to fix those around us, especially those whom we love. We want to heal them and help them and protect them and give them happiness and joy and contentment. And then, of course, there's the world, right, with its myriad of problems, its innumerable challenges. How do we do these things? What is the wisdom that we need to fix what is broken? Sometimes we're tempted to believe that if, if we can just develop a perfect game plan, right, if we can just make the right list of pros and cons, right, if we can just enact the right habit of discipline, uh, then we can do it. We can fix ourselves. We can fix those around us. We can fix the world, or maybe if not fix those things, at least help them 
at least improve them, make them better in some way. But what is wisdom, biblically speaking? It's to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It's to be not wise in your own eyes, but to fear the Lord and to turn away from evil. You see, biblical wisdom is so, in some sense, simple and straightforward and yet so hard to cling to. Calvin, John Calvin, um, the the Protestant theologian and and pastor, he writes um, in the 15th century or 16th century and says, if only this sentiment of trusting the Lord and leaning not on our wisdom, if only this sentiment were effectually engraven upon our hearts, he's saying we need this sentiment to be written and engraved and carved on our hearts because it slips out of our grasp as soon as we walk out the door. It's so easy to become wise in our own sight rather than saying, I'm not wise in my own sight. It's so easy to trust in our own wisdom than in the wisdom of the Lord. Well, beloved, this psalm, Psalm 60, is given to us for our instruction, for our learning that it might be written on our hearts. Even the conclusion of the psalm summarizes its wisdom. The salvation of man is vain, the psalmist says. It is God who will trample down our foes. Or to put it another way, as David's son would put it, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The introduction to Psalm 60 gives us its context, and this is really important to understand the psalm. It's a psalm of David, uh, written after he has received the throne of Israel and begun the work of defeating Israel's armies, particularly the Moabites and the Edomites. The Edomites were the sons of Esau. They had plagued Israel ever since their entrance into the land of Canaan, or even since they began to draw close to the land of Canaan. So for hundreds of years. You see, one of the sometimes overlooked facts about David's kingship is what a disaster he walked into when he became king, what a disaster Saul's reign had been for Israel, what a difficult situation David inherited when the throne was given to him. Saul started off pretty well, He had some success against the peoples of the land, but as Saul declined, as he turned away from the Lord, remember in his hatred of David, he had slaughtered nearly all of the priests of Israel. He'd killed them all, apart from one who escaped because of the fear that they were conspiring against him with David. Fear of conspiracy, by the way, was a common suspicion of Saul's. And and God abandoned Saul because of his sin. And as God abandoned him, Israel was defeated again and again and again by her enemies, bringing ruin to the kingdom as they were oppressed by the peoples of the land, just as they had been during the time of the judges. And indeed, that cycle that you see in the time of judges happens during the kingship of Saul. The people are abandoned by God, and they are defeated again and again in battle. And their territory shrinks and shrinks 
Israel's decline under Saul reached its ugly climax in the battle of Mount Geboa, which you read about in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, where Saul and Jonathan were both killed in battle, and the Philistines won a great victory over Israel's armies and captured many of its cities. This is how Samuel puts it. He says, when the men of Israel saw that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. Right? The king is dead, they said. The Philistines have won. And Samuel says, and the Philistines came to the cities of the Israelites and they lived in them. They occupied them. This is the context in which David became king. It was a time of chaos and weakness for Israel. But what David rightly understood and what he reveals in this psalm is that all of these disasters had come upon the people of God because God had turned away from them. Right? David rightly understands that the devastation that Israel is experiencing isn't because Saul didn't have you know, a professional training program for his military officers where they learned good tactics. It wasn't because he didn't produce enough spears and swords. No, the reason for Israel's fall was because they had been rejected by the Lord. Listen to how David describes Israel's situation in the first three verses. This is the kind of language that he uses in this psalm. He says, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have made the land to quake. David says, you have torn it open. You have made your people see hard things. You can imagine, right, the, the, the chaos of the end of the, Mount, the battle of Mount Geboa, right? The, the, the people dying, the, the men of Israel fleeing, Saul and Jonathan dead. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. The language that David uses here for his people's suffering, it's visceral, it's poignant. He identifies, and he identifies God's hand as behind all of their suffering. He says that God has broken down Israel's defenses. He has rejected them. God has shaken the land and torn it apart. God has made his people to see suffering and not allowed them to turn their eyes away from it, away from the horror he has made them inebriated and defenseless against their enemies. And likewise, David knows that the path for Israel's healing, the path that he wants to, to lead them on as their new king, isn't through his own military genius or his strength in arms. Rather, he sees the life of his people, the healing of his people, as solely dependent on one thing, the mercy of God. God must turn his face to them again. And so he says, you have been angry to God. And then, oh, restore us. And then he cries out to God, repair what is broken. Restore, oh God. Repair, oh God. Remember, this psalm is written for our instruction. And what David is doing here for us is demonstrating a deeply theological interpretation of his circumstances. Right? David is seeing his world 
through the lens of God's activity, God's presence or absence. David understands that what is driving all the chaos and difficulty for God's people isn't Israel's weakness in battle or the lack of a, of a well-organized economy. No, he says God has done this. God has brought about all this devastation, and so therefore only God can heal it. Only God can fix it. You see, what David is doing here is demonstrating for us what it means practically to trust in the Lord and to lean not on our own understanding. He is showing us that what it means to to rightly, not only what it means to rightly identify the source of our problems, but also the source of any solution that exists. And he's arguing for our instruction that we might learn it with him that the only solution that is available, that we can apply to whatever is broken, whatever it is that we long to be fixed in our world or in our lives or in the lives of those around us, is the mercy and grace and healing brought by the Spirit of God. Only God can heal and repair and restore. That's verses 1 to 3. Then verses 4 to 8, David points to the source of that healing, the only hope that he sees for God's people, which are the promises and the character of the living God. Now, it's important to remember for a moment that David is writing this psalm in the immediate context of success in battle, right? His warriors have just won a victory over the Edomites, yet still David is pointing the attention of his people away from their own strength and toward the promises of God. If healing is to come, David is saying, it will only come in this way. Because the living God will keep the promises that he has made to us. In verses 4 to 5, David writes, he says, speaking to the Lord, he says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has set up a banner, David says, for those who fear him, that they might flee to that banner, that they might find refuge and be delivered and saved. Right? The, the image of a banner here is important. And in a time of trouble and confusion on a, on a battlefield or in some other image, a place of chaos where people are milling around not knowing what to do or what is happening, a banner that is lifted high in the air where everyone can see it becomes a place where those who are afraid can run towards. They can flee there. Right? The banner marks the presence of the king. It marks a safe place, a place where those who are in trouble can run towards. I don't know anything else in this situation, that person can say, but there's the banner. I can go there. Right? And in the time of crisis, a banner is lifted high in the air. It's like a north star. It's a way out of confusion, a place where strength and refuge are offered to all who come. And David is saying that in this time of chaos for Israel, this time of despair, that is depicted in verses 1 to 3 as the land is quaking and the defenses are torn down. God has raised a banner 
so that those who are afraid will have a place to go. But what's the banner? What's this safe place? We read about it in verses 6 to 8. It's the promises of God. It's the voice of God. That's the banner that David is saying is being lifted by God for his people to run to. The banner is the promises of God. You see, in verses 6 to 8, David focuses our attention on God's voice, which cuts through the confusion of the present circumstance. He focuses their their gaze on what God has said, and he says, this is the banner that our God has set up for us to run to and flee to. He says, God has spoken in his holiness. That's what David says in verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness, right, according to his holy character that he cannot go back on. And God has said these things, David is saying. He says, with exultation, these are the words of God here that David is quoting. With exultation, I, that is the living God, Yahweh, will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. These were areas that lay on the east and west banks of the Jordan River. Gilead is mine, the Lord says. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. These are the tribes of Israel that, they, that the Lord has laid claim to, that he will give Shechem and the val- valley of Succoth. And then he turned, the Lord turns in his voice to what he has said about the, the peoples of the land, those peoples who have rejected him and worshiped false gods. He says, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. This is the banner that David is pointing his people to. David is reaching back into Israel's history, back to the time hundreds of years before when God promised certain things to the descendants of Jacob. That he would in fact give the land of Canaan to Israel. That he would elevate the tribes of the sons of Israel. Manasseh, Ephraim, Judah. And that he would bring down the nations that inhabited the land. Moab, Edom, Philistia. Just as we heard in our second reading this morning, that prophecy of Balaam is one of the things that David is pointing back to and saying, God has said he will give us this land, that he will be faithful, that he will bring down our enemies. This is the banner, David is saying, that we must flee to, that we must put our trust in. Not in our swords, not in our strength, not in our own wisdom. No, David is saying, this is our banner. This is our one shot at the healing that our land needs. It is that the God who has promised to be faithful will actually be faithful. Faithful. That's right, faithful. (laughs) Our only hope, David is saying, is for healing what God has broken. or, Or our only hope for what is healing what is broken is that God will do it, that God will actually show up and keep those promises. And and beloved, what I want you to see is that the same thing is true for you. It is. Whatever it is that is broken in your life, whatever it is that is broken in your heart or in the hearts of those whom you love and care for, 
whatever is broken in the world around you, you don't have a chance of fixing it. You don't. You simply don't. You can't even fix yourself, much less your parents or your spouse or your siblings or your friends or your children or your neighbor. The only one who can help you is the Lord, the living God. And the banner that God has set up for you to run to is the banner of his promises. His promises that he is in fact good, that he is actually trustworthy, that his steadfast love does endure forever, that it is not taken from you, and that all of this has been revealed to you in nothing less than the objective fact of the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is a banner. The death and resurrection of Jesus driven into the ground is a sign of the faithfulness of God and the promises he has made to you. In verses 9 to 12, David then takes all these themes of his psalm and brings them to a conclusion. And I think David really leans into his dependence on God, his vulnerability here. And he, he's begging the Lord to help his people once again. Right? David is speaking here. He says, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. You see, David is placing himself here into the hands of God. He is saying that without God to lead him against the fortified city, against the armies of Edom, his situation is hopeless. He can't do it. He can't bring peace to the land. He can't fix what ails Israel. Only God can accomplish those things. And then he says to God, Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. Right? Empty is the salvation of man. Useless is the salvation of man. With God, though, David says, we shall do valiantly. Why? Because it is he, David says, it is God who will tread down our foes. God is the one who will do it. Now, friends, if you know some of the rest of the story that's recorded in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, then you know that this psalm has actually a kind of a happy ending, so to speak. At least for a time, there's a kind of happy ending. For it was during David's reign, the years that he was king, those 40 years that Israel came the closest that it ever came to fully conquering the land of Canaan that God had given to her. David pushed out the boundaries of Israel with God's blessing and presence. God in his mercy and grace pushed out the boundaries of Israel's kingdom broader and wider than they had ever been before and they ever would be again. David lived to see Moab and Edom and Philistia all defeated, at least during his lifetime. They would come back, but during his lifetime they were defeated. And what David conquered, his son Solomon then reigned over and built up in glory. Right? You can read about this period in Israel's history there in, in the first chapters of 1 Kings. Though, though it did not last, 
It didn't last due to the sins of her kings and the sins of her people. But those 80 years in which David and Solomon reigned over Israel, they really were the closest that she ever came to a golden age in her history, in all of her history. The enemies of Israel during this time were defeated. Her people prospered. There was peace. There was wealth. There were good laws that were justly upheld. There was prosperity and blessing that flowed out from Jerusalem where the king lived and where the temple was built to the lives of all Israel. And even, as it turns out, to the nations around them. The nations around Israel were positively blessed through her time during those years. If you read there in 1 Kings about Solomon's reign, you get a sense for what this was like. Some of the most beautiful chapters in the Old Testament. The the glory of what God did during those days. The wonder, the, the lavishness of the king's table where anyone who was hungry could come and eat. The, the beauty of the temple. The peace and prosperity that Israel enjoyed. A peace and prosperity that was the envy of the nations around them. But what this psalm shows us is that all of these blessings, all of these successes, quote-unquote, came to David and Solomon not because of their own skill and and warfare or administration, their own wisdom, their own cunning. No, these things came only because of the blessing and favor of God. There's no other explanation for it. No other explanation for how a struggling confederation of tribes could push back their ancient enemies that they'd lost against for hundreds of years and then accumulate enough wealth to build one of the most glorious buildings in all of the world. Indeed, all of world history, really. How could that have happened other than the kindness and favor of God who was keeping his promises to his people? You see, the secret, so to speak, of Israel's success during that period of her life, it's disclosed to us in this psalm. In the last words, it was not David and Solomon who did all these things. No, it was God who was treading down all their foes. God was doing it. And beloved, there is a lesson here for you, for your instruction, for your learning. Whatever it is that is broken in your life, whatever it is that needs healing, you cannot do it. You can't. You can't figure it out. You can't accurately diagnose it, much less figure out how to make it better. You're just simply not capable of it. But what you can do is this. And indeed, it's the only hope you have, I would argue. You can run to the banner that God has given you in his promises. The banner that has been appointed for you in the death and resurrection of his son. And you can confess that only he can do it. Only God can help you. Only his spirit can restore and repair what is broken in your life. Only he can tread down your foes. All you can do, really, in the end, is run to that banner that has been raised and trust that he will deliver you, that he will fix what is broken, that he will keep his promises. Beloved, this is what it means to be wise. It really is. 
to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. This is the wisdom of David and of Solomon. And it's the wisdom that knows that the banner of God's promises that he has placed in the ground for all time is nothing less than his crucified and risen son. The one now who lives in heaven for us that we might flee to him and be saved. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, indeed, we give you praise and thanks for your word, for your faithfulness, even for this psalm that is written for our instruction. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, indeed, we would cling to its promises, that we would learn its wisdom, and that it would indeed be engraven upon our hearts. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.